Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hey everyone, I'm glad you could join me as this week we get to speak with Hannah McKnight. Now Hannah's really great at crafting words and communicating stories, and in this conversation we talk about what makes a great vision. Here's an excerpt from our conversation. I think being very clear on what it is that you're ultimately trying to achieve is key, so that purpose or vision statement is key. Um, That's a question that I will ask at the very start of every potential client meeting or Mm. every conversation with a pro bono client, whoever it is, I'll be like, what's your big picture Mm -hmm. for the world? What are you trying to achieve here? What's your purpose and vision as a company? Mm. Um, And if you can't answer that question, well, we need to go back to the drawing board and work on that before we start rolling out the other communications because Mm. everything needs to be tied back to that Mm. in some way. Mm. Um, And if it's not, it's not really central to your organization. Well, I know you're going to enjoy this interview with Hannah, and there's also lots of practical tips throughout the interview for those of you who are looking to communicate your message more clearly. If you enjoy this interview, then there's more than a hundred others in the back catalog, and if you find it helpful, then it might be a friend of yours would also enjoy it, so why not consider sharing it with them? Now let's jump into this interview with Hannah. It's a real pleasure to welcome Hannah McKnight, who's the founder of Natahi Communications. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Stephen. It's really great to have you here, and I know you've listened to some episodes in the past, so you know the format, which is we're going to talk a little bit about your background and Mm. where you're from, and then we're going to talk about some of the things that you're involved in. And I'm actually really excited about this because I know from personal experience that you're really good at helping people craft the way to express what their vision is. And so I'd love to get some insights from you about communication. Uh, But before we do that, can we just go right back to the beginning and tell us a bit about where you're from? Uh, So I grew up on a high country station out the back of Oxford in the middle of nowhere up the Lees Valley, um, which was a really interesting upbringing to have. So it was just me, my family um, and my grandparents ran a high country station up there. We used to get snowed in in the winter and wow. those sorts of things, so it was pretty remote. Um, so in a high country station for the people listening who aren't from New Zealand, mm-hmm. like, those are big, right? Yeah, so They're... I think it was 25,000 acres. Wow. Um, so it was a big triangle-shaped piece of land, and it went right out to the mountains. Mount Oxford, I think, was part of the back of that. And we used to – I remember being a child, and we would take – the ute out the back of the farm for the autumn muster and then have to stay the night out the back of the farm in this hut and muster all the sheep down from the hills and then bring them back into the flatland. Mm-hmm. So it was like a two-day process to do that. It wasn't just a case of go out for an hour, bring the sheep back, you're done. It was a yeah, quite the lengthy journey. Yeah, so if people have a stereotype of New Zealand as being lots of sheep, you were actually living that dream. Yeah, I was, actu- <laughs> I was actually living the, the sheep and beef farm yeah. sort of a dream, yeah, right right in the middle of nowhere. Uh-huh. Um, amazing countryside, amazing upbringing to have as a kid, just, mm. you know, exploring outside, being around lots of animals, um, being on the land, not much technology, not much, much access to toys, never... Um, did online gaming or you know never had a I don't don't even know what they call PlayStation I think yeah. never saw any of those kinds of things when I was a kid because we were just outside mm. all the time mm. and how did your your parents get into that like was it a family 
thing that they that they'd looked after land yeah, like that? So, so both of their families were farmers. Right. Um, so my grandparents owned the farm that we were working on there, mm-hmm. and my dad had a family farm in the North Island, which we later moved to when I was about seven. Um, so they'd yeah always been people who worked on the land, um, and I don't think it was really they never thought it there was going to be anything different. Mum had gone overseas and nannied for a bit, but then she'd come back to um, marry Dad, who was a farmer, and then back onto the farm, back on the land, yeah. Mm-hmm. And how long had the land been in the family then? Uh, I'm not sure how long that land had been in the family. Nan and Gramps had got that farm after another family farm, which was in the same area. Right. Um but yeah, definitely when we had when we had to move from there and when Nanograms had to sell it, um, the merino prices went bad, I think, in the early nineties. Um, I was only, you know, five or six then, so mm. it's a bit hard to remember, but um it was really sad to leave it because it definitely had a very strong tie, that area, not necessarily that specific farm, but that area mm-hmm. um of the country. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And what other memories do you have then as a young child, I guess? With, you said you had a sister? Or? Yeah, I got two sisters okay. um, and a little brother who didn't come along until we moved back up to the North Island. Mm. Um, but yeah, have a lot of memories of being out on the farm. Um, memories of eeling. Um, mm. So going and finding eels with nanograms in this big swimming hole that we had. We had um, a bit of a resident eel there who used to try and wrap itself around my granddad's leg when we went swimming in the swimming hole. So I was kind of terrified of um, right. <laughs> swimming in there, quite rightly so. Um, yeah, memories of going out mustering on the farm, mm. of um, going out into the paddocks with the stock horses and standing underneath their tummies when I was a tiny wee kid and patting their tummies and... Yeah, mum having heart attacks because right. <laughs> she'd find me out with the horses um, and my little sisters. So they're, tw- they're twins mm-hmm. and um, yeah, have memories of them. So they had to get nappies flowing in by, I think, the Air Force or the Army when we had this big snow oh. and we got snowed in to the valley. And so they had to get nappies and supplies flowing in for my little sisters because wow. they were so little. Um, and I used to get them into all sorts of trouble and they used to get me into all sorts of trouble go mm-hmm. and pick berries and then eat all of them and come back in denial with berry juice all over our faces and right. clothes <laughs> um, and yeah always getting into trouble outside yeah so it sounds like nature and sort of the outdoors was a big part of that childhood yeah huge part um so when when we were living up in the valley um, it was a big part and then we moved to the North Island when I was about seven onto another family farm so dad's side of the family this time um, and that again was quite a remote place the um, place we were living was actually called Oangaiti which means place of little significance in Te Reo Māori hmm. so that's how it's little that it how was it is. yeah <laughs> yeah um, so it had like four streets a quite dodgy pub um, and the farm that we were on was called Beverly Hills, which Dad thought was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so growing up there, we had horses, goats, pet rabbits, um, lots of farm dogs, a cat. So we're always out doing stuff with the animals, helping mum and dad on the farm with docking, which I think we call tailing down here mm-hmm. um, in the South Island, um, with mustering, riding horses, riding motorbikes. Very much outdoorsy kids, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it, yeah. And at the the valley that you mentioned that you left when you were seven, is mm. that somewhere you've been back to 
as a grown up? Like, yeah, it- I, I have been back actually when I moved when I moved back down to Christchurch mm-hmm. um, after finishing university. So about almost 10 years ago now I think Mm. um I went back up into the valley and it was interesting because I actually even though I left there when I was six seven Mm -hmm. um I definitely have very strong memories so Mm. I drove past the front of our station and looked up the lawn and I remembered like being on the lawn with my great granddad in his wheelchair and doing like wheelchair races down this hill on the lawn um and yeah all sorts of funny things like that came back to me when I went back mm. yeah it's important isn't it sometimes to go back to those places like yeah it is I, and I find as well yeah. there's definitely a very strong sense of home and um when I go to the North Island to where we used to live there um, for 10 years of my life as well like there's just a s- strong sense even when I'm just driving through the area mm-hmm. of it just feels like home mm-hmm. feels like the right place to be mm-hmm. yeah that's good so when you're growing up then in that environment like um, how did you get to school and like is it that remote or were you doing correspondence or what was um, that like so in the original the original farm up the valley yes I was doing correspondence so yep. mum was my teacher mm-hmm. um, and I used to come up with all sorts of fun creative stories and um, things like that. So I, yeah, I became quite a good writer and reader actually at a young age because I was being taught by mum. And so I spent a lot of time mm. reading and writing and being creative. I remember writing little books about monkeys and things when I was four and drawing covers on them and all sorts of things like that. And then when we lived on the second farm in the North Island, we had to drive, I think, 15, 20 minutes to meet a school bus that then took us another 20, 30 minutes to school. Right. Um, so every day there was the school run with mum and dad where we got taken and dropped off at the corner where the bus came to and then jumped on that and then went to school mm-hmm. and then, yeah, repeated that. Yeah, so pretty remote. Yeah, so pretty remote, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that love of um, writing and words and things, is that something that that your mother had as well or where where did, where did that come from yeah not not so much my mother but um her grandfather actually my my great-grandfather on that side of the family he used to write us books when we were children right so he used to write about the native animals of New Zealand um and he'd write about Wally the weasel and um hawks and give them all names I think it was Harriet the hawk and he did illustrate them all he was a very good um mm. painter as well so he used to get those clear file binders mm-hmm and hand write these stories about these animals and then do the illustrations and put them in the binders and bring them to us as gifts. Um, And he would sit and read to us these books that he'd made. And I just, yeah, like I absolutely loved them. And I was really lucky because I had my great-grandfather around until I was 12 or 13. Mm -hmm. Um, So he was quite a big influence. And he, yeah, he always wrote very creative stories, long letters to me as well. Mm. Um, and I used to write long letters back to him and, yeah, sent little artworks and doodles and drawings. So mm. he was a very creative sort. Yeah. Do you still have those drawings and stories and things? Mum still has them, yeah, yeah, tucked away. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, pretty special. And I've got some letters at home and a drawer from him that he wrote to me when I was, yeah, at 10 or 11. We used to write back and forth all the time. Yeah. Oh, that's great that you still have it. Because yeah. <laughs> I think there is that legacy, isn't there, from a well, a great-grandparent. That's, yeah. that's pretty cool to yeah, have. Yeah, it's very cool. My, my great-grandfather, he loved to write as well. Hmm. And I often think, because I love writing, and I think there is something 
about that influence through the generations. Yeah, you know, I think that, there is. And it's um, it's really interesting too because I was looking recently into my dad's side of the family and um, on that side of the family we're Ngāti Puro, which is an iwi based up in the Gisborne area. Hmm. And I don't know a lot about our Māori side of the family, but I've been looking more into it. Hmm. And what I discovered is that there are quite a few people within that iwi who have been like renowned writers and journalists and there's quite a storytelling sort of theme hmm. um, on that side of the family as well. So it was, yeah, really interesting to see that and realize that I'm working in that space. Yeah, that's special because it's an echo back to (laughs) previous generations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Just with your great grandfather, what was it that you appreciated about him the most? Just the time that he spent. Mm. He always had time for us and he would just sit and really interact, Mm. Um, which I think growing up, rurally and not spending a lot of time with tv and technology and that sort of thing i really appreciate face-to-face interaction Mm -hmm. and spending time with people um and that's you know a really valuable thing for me and that's one of the things that he taught me as well like he would just sit and spend time with you and tell stories and have a laugh and be a bit silly and Mm -hmm. get creative um yeah, and he was just always so passionate about what he was doing with his work as well. Like I remember his art room and he would always be in there and there'd be half-finished artworks and paint all about the place and paintbrushes and jars. And, mm-hmm. you know, he was just always doing and creating. Right. So you saw it by his example. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, I love to think back to those previous people who've come before and yeah, um, yeah just remember them because people are listening I'm sure they have memories of their grandparents and great-grandparents, maybe. Yeah, I definitely yeah. think like the older generations have a huge influence on us, which perhaps we don't necessarily realize mm. when we're younger. Um, but when you start to get older and you look back yeah. on some of those memories, you realize what a big influence they did have. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, I've even found in this podcast, sometimes people write to me afterwards and they say, I never really thought about what I do now and how my my grandfather or my grandmother or whatever yeah. had influenced what I do. So that's really great. So as you come into your teenage years and sort of what sort of things did you enjoy doing? And um, yeah. Yeah. So when I was a teenager, I loved horse riding. Right. So I was very big on horse riding. Mm-hmm. It's part of the local pony club. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, just used to spend a lot of time riding horses out on the farm. Um, a lot of time walking around the farm and just helping out with farm work. And then I was also very academic, um, so very much into English um, and science. So I did a lot of writing and a lot of sort of extra reading, and mm-hmm. I was a little bit nerdy. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> lots of reading of novels sitting tucked away in the corner of the garden somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I was always reading, writing, or outdoors, writing, yeah. walking on the farm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you have a favorite type of novel or writing or...? just anything, um, <laughs> anything I was I was very much into reading Bryce Courtney books when okay. I was a teenager um I can't so that's rem- like African adventures uh, and things or is it well no is, so it was there was a book there was a book about Australia that he'd okay. written called Jessica which is one of the first like huge novels that I read um and it was just amazing sort of triumph over adversity story for her like she just came up against all of these things mm. I've always liked that triumph over adversity the underdog kind of story Mm. um and yeah that story got me really into that I think my I think my grandmother gave it to us right um so I loved reading Bryce Courtney which was very much an adult's book Mm -hmm. um adult's author I should say I didn't really read a lot of teen 
fiction sort of stuff. Um, right. And I loved writing poetry and short stories. I used to put together wee poetry books. Mum mm-hmm. found some of them from when I was about 10 or 11 mm-hmm. recently with wee covers that I'd done. And then I'd bound them and put all these different poems and short stories into right. them. Yeah. And publisher with cool borders. Right. Yeah. With good fonts, maybe. Yeah, with great fonts. <laughs> Lots of different maybe fonts. Maybe some 3D fonts. Yeah. And- <laughs> yeah. Heaps of word yeah. art, um, all of that kind of thing. But yeah. 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 It was. It had its time. Yeah, in the, uh, it in was the cool then. It was cool. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It was the way to express yourself. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So then, um, coming through high school, did you know what you wanted to study or do after you'd left home? That type of thing. And um, I always, I'd always loved writing, and I spent so much time creative writing actually that I used to get in a bit of trouble at school um, because I wouldn't be paying attention to what we were actually studying. I'd be mm-hmm. writing a story instead, or writing about something instead. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I knew that I was going to go in the writing sort of direction. Mm-hmm. I um, thought originally about becoming a journalist, and that's kind of what I thought I was going to do while I was at high school. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, I also debated becoming a lawyer. Hmm. Um, so I was looking into both when I was at high school. Well, I think you chose yeah. well, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I chose the right thing. Because, yeah. Um, yeah, it was that sort of that social change uh-huh. advocacy kind of passion for the underdog thing that yeah. made law interesting to yeah. me. Well, um, even as you're talking as well, like I was similar to you. Like I love to read. I love to write. I used to, you know, have write poems and all mm. that type of thing. And I kind of went the other path of law because in law you do, do often have to write a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting to hear you know, how people choose different things. So what did that mean in practical steps? What When you finished high school, where did you go or what did you do? Yeah, so I went to Massey University after mm-hmm. finishing high school and I still was a little bit unsure. So I actually went straight into, I think it was the first year they ever ran the Bachelor of Communications. Mm-hmm. Um, so the reason that I chose that over the Bachelor of Arts is because there was a really broad range of papers in the first year and they were all picked for you. Um, and they were all, uh, some of them were business papers, some of them were writing papers, some were creative writing and poetry and creative expression papers. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was quite a, a broad range of communication topics mm-hmm. in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought when I started studying that after that first year, I'd figure out what it was that I was good at. Um, and it turned out that I really enjoyed all of the papers. So I was still a little bit confused in my second year. Um, So I decided to study both journalism studies and communications management. So the journalism side of things and the more PR, business communication side of things, Mm -hmm. and do a minor in expressive arts, which was poetry writing and creative writing, Mm -hmm. creative expression. So I followed all three of those lines. Right. Um, and explored quite a bit of cross-cultural communication as well because that really interests me, like mm-hmm. different styles of different cultures and different people and how that communication works. Mm-hmm. Um, so went through three years at Massey there, and while I was studying, I volunteered for the Cancer Society, um, doing some communications for them mm-hmm. with their members. So did some, in a voluntary role, um, newsletters and helping with their brand changes and communications with their members in the region and there's a way of getting a bit of experience and did an internship actually with um Ford motor vehicles um while I was at university which was very different to who I thought I would be placed with Mm -hmm. um because it was very much a business Mm -hmm. marketing communications role Mm -hmm. um so I did really well at it but I knew 
as soon as I'd done that internship that that wasn't the type of communications that I wanted to be doing. It was definitely the Cancer Society job that I'd been volunteering and interested me right. far more. Yeah. And which campus were you on? Was that in Wellington? Or uh, was that was it? in Palmerston North. In Palmerston North. Yeah, yeah. so I was on campus there for three years, mm. and then I did postgraduate study as well, um, but while I was working in my first role. Right. Yeah. Ah, interesting. It's it's fascinating, isn't it, when you get a taste of the real world, like to study is one thing and then to actually be out working for a corporate or yeah. working for a not-for-profit. I mean, you have to experience it for real. And mm. funnily enough, I had, um, I had a student from the University of Canterbury contact me recently who I had coffee with today. Mm-hmm. Um, and she wanted to know about what it's like to work in the real world because she hasn't heard much about communicating for not-for-profits or for social and environmental change through her degree. Mm-hmm. Um, so she came armed with two pages of questions for me. Um, and I wish that I'd done more of that while I was at university. Right. Because um, she was a first year and I was very impressed because she came to me with this big list of questions and wanted to know all of this stuff because she hasn't had the opportunity to experience it yet. So she's asking people mm-hmm. in the industry because um, it is so different once you get out into the working world mm-hmm. and start applying your degree. It's very different the things that you learn and the way that it's applied. Mm-hmm. It's often like that, isn't it? The, the theoretical university or whatever the training is. Yeah, like it gives you a good foundation. Yeah. And you need that foundation um, to understand, you know, how to work in the industry and the types of things that you need to be doing, but then applying them. Mm. You've, yeah, definitely got to feel your way and try a few different things before you figure out what your thing is. Yeah. Yeah, and I'd love to talk about what your thing is <laughs> in terms of where you've landed, but just talk us through the next couple of years in, in terms of you finished studying and what was it that you started doing first? Yeah, so I moved back down to Christchurch. Um, my family had moved down here while I was in my last year of high school. So I actually um, ended up going flatting in my last year of high school and working at the local pub in the kitchen and things like that. So I felt pretty independent by the time I got to uni. Mm. Um So after university, came back down to Christchurch and I was working in sort of digital marketing and content marketing for a startup down here that um, it was online commerce, but when online commerce was just starting, so Shopify didn't exist and that sort of thing. So it was a daily deals website and they they sold you know, but like like one day kind Mm. of thing. Um, So I was doing content marketing and digital marketing for them. And then the earthquake happened, the um, mm-hmm. February 2011 one, and our offices fell down. So I very quickly had to learn how to do crisis communications for mm. thousands of customers mm. um, on my own <laughs> with, um, you know, a year and a half out of university. So that was... Um, Pretty yeah. intense. <laughs> Threw me in the deep end, yeah. 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 So what did you learn from that in terms of communicating in a crisis? What are some things that stick out to you? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I think to keep very level-headed and calm and let yourself calm down before you start to communicate. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you've been through the crisis yourself, which we had, like we were in our office when it fell down. Mm. So we were feeling you know, pretty crap and um, quite upset and emotional and those sorts of things. And then we had customers from... Auckland angry because you know their camera hadn't been delivered but it was in our fallen down building right. um, so have to remove the emotional wanting to respond with 
are you kidding me? <laughs> it's in a fallen down building. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and go into sort of a quite um, business-like calm state. Um, from there, it's about planning what you're going to say and making sure that you communicate proactively with everyone what, rather than trying to answer everyone's inquiries. And I'd studied that at university, um, so I knew to do that. But it was definitely a big learning curve having the earthquake and all of these customers coming to us. Where are my things? Some of them, are you all right? Is the business still operating, et cetera, et cetera. So I had to put together messaging covering all of those things and then go out to the customers proactively so we weren't having to answer thousands and thousands of inquiries that were coming in. Right. We were, yeah, had to front foot it. So I can already see some trends emerging here, you know, right from your childhood, enjoying writing and things and then studying and learning marketing and communication and the influence of working at a charity. Mm. Um, can you just bring us up to speed in terms of how that's developed and what it is that you're involved in now? Yeah, so after that first role, I went and worked at Ada, Universe, uh, Ada Institute of Canterbury, which was then called um, Christchurch Polytechnic. And I was in the communications team there. Um, so that was a lot of student storytelling and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, then I went into a health and disability communications role at an agency. So I was doing a lot of work for the Ministry of Health, Education and Social Development mm-hmm. and also worked at the University of Canterbury doing education comms there. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I loved about all of those roles was the social change and the social um, impact aspect of what we were doing. It was all around sharing stories and sharing messages to inspire other people to improve their lives in some way. But what I found is that it was the little organisations that would be working alongside the Ministry of Health, for example, that I would gravitate towards because they'd be doing all of this amazing mahi on the ground um, and all of this amazing grassroots stuff. But they had no support to make a bigger impact Mm -hmm. and they didn't have the resources or someone there to help them guide how to tell their story to generate more support Mm. and and more funds and those sorts of things. So I I wanted to help those people. Um, So I had an opportunity to work with a whanau order organisation while I was still working at the University of Canterbury Um, and they're still a client of mine today actually. So it's a whanau order project called Hei Whakapiki Māori which is for Māori with disabilities. Mm. Um, And over the past three years, they've expanded across the South Island. They were originally just a pilot project in Christchurch. So it's been cool to see them do that. And working on that, it was like a make my heart sing Mm, thing. And then I would go into my job at the university and although there were some cool stories happening and I was getting to talk to some really amazing students and researchers, it just didn't make my heart sing. Um, So I made the decision to give consulting a go. Mm went out on my own and haven't looked back yeah. from there. That's great. And yeah. making your heart sing. What what was it do you think that what was it that made your heart sing? What was it was it the stories that you were hearing and the impact that they were having or? Yeah, it was the it was the real tangible impact. So it was the little things. Mm-hmm. Um like for example a story from them not long ago there was a man who was living in a garage. And he was having trouble accessing social housing and he was very isolated because he'd had to give up work because of his disability. And they connected him with housing and then with all of the different whānau that are part of Hei Whakapiki Māori. And so now he's got this whole network in behind him. And when I went to interview him, he cried 
because of how thankful he was to now have this wider sort of whanau around him and mm. to have a new place to live. And they may seem like quite simple little things, but for that man that's changed his whole entire life mm. and being able to see that happen um, just in little ways and for individual people and be a part of that and know that it was happening, you know, see the real impact, that was what made my mm. heart sing. Like I could be quite close to it, whereas when I was working on big picture stuff for the Ministry of Health, for example, yes, I could see that it was making an impact, but I didn't necessarily get to follow it through all the way to mm. this person has had this result. Right. Um, so it's, yeah, being able to see it the whole way through, I think that mm. being able to and connect it, with the people. And it's one thing to be, and it's great to be involved at the macro level, yeah. with big numbers and X hundred of thousand mm. of this and five million of this, but actually... John, who now has a job and can pay for his groceries. Like, yeah. That's what you're meaning, isn't it? Yeah, like the, exactly. The real, yeah. yeah. And since you've done this a lot um, in terms of telling people's stories, what what is it that you're looking for or how do you draw out the best from them to be able to present to the world and say, here's a story worth listening to or looking at? Um, it all starts with building a relationship with them. So mm-hmm. making it, just like a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I never try and make an interview feel like an interview. Mm-hmm. I make it just feel like a conversation of follow the thread, not dissimilar in the way to you right. interview people. What we're doing now, yeah. <laughs> um, exactly, very similar to what we're doing now. So just get very comfortable and on their level. I always like to try and meet people at their home or at their work or somewhere they've chosen where they feel really comfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, If I'm going to meet people in their home, I take food, um, which is something that I've been brought up to do, you know, take some scones. Um, And if I'm meeting someone in a cafe, I buy a coffee and we yarn about other things first before Mm -hmm. we get down to the questions. Um, And I follow the thread of where they're going. I've always got a list of questions in mind, Mm -hmm. but I follow the thread of where they're going so that they feel comfortable and telling their story mm-hmm. um, and there is there's kind of a I'm not quite sure what it is um, but my family seems to have this thing people tend to if I start to have a good talk with them there's just a point I can see where they've relaxed and they're open mm-hmm. and they open up to me like it's almost an intuitive thing and that's when I know that I can ask them the hard question mm-hmm. um, the difficult question about something yeah so yeah, some of some of it's about feeling your way as well. Like it can be quite an intuitive yeah. thing, storytelling. I think. Yeah. So that's something that you've noticed in other members of your family as well. Yeah. That they seem yeah. To my that. my mum and my nan yeah. are the people that everyone tells all of their problems. Right. Um, all of their stories come up and just start talking to in a cafe. Those you know they're just those people that people want to talk to, mm-hmm. and so I've kind of yeah. People That's gravitate great. towards me like that. Um, so, yeah, it's quite funny. Like, mum and nan always attract the children and the older people and the animals and, you know, that kind of, mm-hmm. I don't know, almost maternal sort of thing about them, open. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they must be very welcoming and and are able to listen well as as well right because that's a skill to be able to actually connect with people yeah and make people feel heard as well I think um you have to be genuinely interested in someone's story and one of the reasons why I didn't go into journalism is because when I tried out some journalism roles while I was at university it was too um too quick and too 
concise to have to turn around these questions with people. I think that's so important and not just looking at the watch and looking at the next question. Yeah, exactly. On. Well, we're on to number seven now. Because mm. <laughs> as you know, the people listening can't see, but I don't have a list of questions here. Yeah. Because this is literally, we're just having a conversation. Yeah, which is how I like to do things. Yeah. Like I am... Um, uh, yeah, I, fi- I find it hard answering a list of questions, yeah. actually, because I think it's much easier to to have, you know, a genuine conversation with someone or, you know, tell a genuine story about what you're doing yeah. when you can have that conversational thread going. Yeah. 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 And then we can go and talk about your great grandfather for a little bit and then come back and then move off. And, yeah. 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 I know for me with this podcast, I always start with sort of tell us a bit about where you're from. Mm. And part of it, well, part of it is I, I really am genuinely curious about the people, which is a big part of what you're hinting at yeah. as well. But also by asking them to share some of their early childhood memories or something from their past, it opens up the trust between me and the guest. Yeah, and exactly. And therefore, when I ask them questions later about what they're doing and what's their motivation and things, they're much more willing to connect and to, and to reveal, I guess. Whereas if I just started with, right, Hannah, um, tell us about your business plan. You know, it, it would just be really abrupt. And yeah, it, yeah. yeah. And I think noticing those little things and asking about them is important because it shows people that you're interested. Mm-hmm. Like when I go into a person's home, if I notice, you know, photos of their children or mm-hmm. um, they've got, you know, a pet cat or something, I'll ask them about those things mm-hmm. and usually they want to tell me about them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or really simple things like complimenting someone on their outfit mm-hmm. and them telling you a little bit about that. Um mm-hmm that warms the situation up or if they have their children present, you know, having a chat with the children as right. well. Yeah. 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 It's all the EQ skills, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, e- exactly. Like we, in university though, we focus so much on what's your test result. Yeah. But actually in real life, it's much more about making p- people feel comfortable yeah. and, and having that warmth, I guess. Mm. Yeah. So I'd love to talk about what you're actually doing sort of day to day. And I know you're, you've been going through a rebranding. Just tell us about the name and, um, yeah, what it is that you're involved in or focused on? Yeah, so my business is called Ngātahi Communications. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means to come together as one. Um, and the whole idea behind it is to bring people together as one through kōrero, so through communication and through storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, so I focus on strategic communications and public relations in the social impact space work with a lot of not-for-profits, social enterprises, and then big organizations who are having social and environmental benefits on society, mm-hmm. and work with them to uncover what their purpose is, what their vision for the future is, um, and tie their communications back to those. So use use purpose and vision and mission and their values to really drive the communications for their organization, give it some weight, mm-hmm. Um, then look at how they're currently communicating across their stakeholders, depending on what their goals are and how that can be enhanced, develop plans for that, and then develop the messaging for the organisation and the stories that go alongside that. And that can come in a variety of forms depending on what their goals are. It might be video stories, it might be written stories, it might be pitching to the media to try and get coverage on one news, it could be blogs, Mm. really depends on their particular goals so it can be quite a fluid holistic approach to communications because it's going right back to the beginning about what the organization is all about mm. and then how they're currently communicating how they can improve that and then what we can use in terms of stories and messaging to help them 
spread their message to attract support and inspire others to do cool stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So, and we actually have some experience of this because you came in a couple months ago and we sat down looking at Perryfield lawyers and sort of what's our messaging and how do we express and things. Can you just talk through, like, because I'm keen for people to learn from the podcast, mm. you know, if somebody is looking at their vision and their mission and their goals and things, what are some of the first things that you'd be challenging them to be thinking about maybe even before they meet you? Um, yeah. What what would be the steps that they should be thinking about? Yeah, so the, th- the the first thing that I always ask people to think about, which can sometimes stump people, is how is the world going to look different as a result of what you're doing? Mm-hmm. So what is the change that you're trying to create in the world? And what is that in a tangible sense? Um, so for me, it's about enabling purpose-driven organizations to become better communicators so they can inspire and influence social change. So what is it for you? Um, and every business has a bigger purpose than selling a product or a service. Um, whether they're a not-for-profit or a traditional business, there's always that higher purpose there. So it's yeah, thinking about what's the big picture change you want to create in the world. And then how are you going to get there? What are you actually doing to create that change? Um, and if there are other things outside of that that you're doing, why are you doing those? Do they actually relate to the mission that you're on um, and then the other big piece is what are the values that are driving you what's important to you and the way that you do business what are you not going to compromise on and values aren't things like we're experienced or we're passionate because everyone's experienced in what they do and everyone's passionate and everyone's um you know authoritative on their topic or whatever it is but what do you actually value in terms of the way you do business so it might be that you value a te ao maori view in the way that you do business or you value inclusion and accessibility in the way that you do business mm-hmm. um, or collaboration. And then what are some examples of those? And if you can start to sort of really pick at those threads of what the core essence of your organization is, then the rest of your communications can grow out of those. So your messaging about who you are, what you do, who it's for and the impact that it makes mm-hmm it's so much clearer to answer those questions once you know what you're all about and what's at the heart of your organization, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Um, And you can use those things to drive any communications decision. It's like, does it fit with our values and our vision and our mission and where we're going? Does it fit with what we're trying to achieve? Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't, why are you doing it? Mm -hmm. And if it does, do more of it. Yeah. So begin with the end in mind. Sort yeah, of. begin sort with of, the end in mind is, yeah. is pretty much it. Um, yeah, have have that big picture, mm. purpose or vision in mind and know how you're going to get there. Um, know what's important to you in getting there mm. and then how that makes a difference in people's lives and use that as a central point to communicate from. So not communicating from a sales point of view or from a purely what you know pragmatic what we do point of view Mm -hmm. but actually how do we help people what ultimate difference does that make in their lives what ultimate difference does that make in the world how are we contributing to positive change for our sector or for our community Mm -hmm. or for the environment whatever that looks like those bigger picture things are the reason that people will choose you Mm -hmm. um not because you offer a product or a service it's the other things around the business Mm -hmm. So just thinking back to your role then, so the, the client comes to you and they, they're, they've got a business of some kind and mm. you give them some homework and 
what's your what is it you want to achieve and that type of thing and then just talk us through like what would happen next what what is it that you can deliver or provide to a client yeah so we usually start first off with their goals and objectives so Mm -hmm. what it is that they're trying to achieve and then we look at who those audience who their audience is Mm -hmm. um that they're trying to influence or that they're trying to build a relationship with Mm -hmm. depending on their goals um then we develop messaging together so that's working on um messaging that will appeal to their stakeholders and really engage them and that portrays their brand in a way that gives it some personality and sounds like them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we work on distribution plans for that messaging. So that might be through media relations, that could be through blogs, that could be through video, um, and there'll be a program of communications usually depending on what we're working on that fits in with that. Mm-hmm. Um, what we end up actually doing depends on the organisations that we're working with. Mm-hmm. Some organisations we do for them other organizations we do alongside them so we might do the strategy and planning of what their communication needs to look like Mm -hmm. and help them with some templates and processes Mm -hmm. and then their internal team will roll most of that out or we might mentor a not-for-profit on how to roll those things out themselves because they don't necessarily have the budget to Mm. or the um, time to be engaging with an outside organization all the time they need to be able to hit the ground running themselves so it might be mentoring. Mm. The implementation side can look quite different. But usually, yeah, it's around strategy, around the communication, then the messaging side of things and developing those stories mm. and distributing those out. Yeah. And in terms of the, we talked a little bit about goals and purpose and vision and mission and everything. If you could say to an organization, there's one key thing that you definitely need, would it be like a one-line vision statement or something? Or what would you recommend Yeah, that's a very good question. I think being very clear on what it is that you're ultimately trying to achieve is key. So that purpose or vision statement is key. Um, That's a question that I will ask at the very start of every potential client meeting or Mm. every conversation with a pro bono client, whoever it is. I'll be like, what's your big picture Mm -hmm. for the world? What are you trying to achieve here? What's your purpose and vision as a company? Mm. Um, And if you can't answer that question... Well, we need to go back to the drawing board and work on that before we start rolling out the other communications because Mm. everything needs to be tied back to that Mm. in some way. Mm. Um, And if it's not, it's not really central to your organisation. So it can be quite a good decision-making piece as well to work on that purpose and vision side of things, that really um, brand positioning messaging or your identity because it gives you a place to make not only communications decisions from, but also business decisions. Like, you know, who might you align with as a sponsor? Mm. Well, that could be tied back to what your values are and what your vision is for the world. Mm -hmm. All of those business decisions can be driven by that as well. Yeah, no, that's good. So practically, let's just look at your business. Mm. (laughs) How would you phrase your vision or your mission or what is it that you feel encompasses this my purpose is like i'm just curious in from your perspective what are what are some of the messages that you would say yeah so my vision is basically of a world where impact organizations are thriving which then contributes to the well-being of new zealanders Mm -hmm. so if we can get organizations to all be creating positive social and environmental impacts. We all have impact on the well-being of everyday New Zealanders. Mm-hmm. So it's all around that business for good side of things. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, that's good. Thank yeah. you. Um, and just thinking about the um, balancing, because you've mentioned a couple of times sort of not-for-profit. Mm. Like there must be many people who need help but can't necessarily afford it. How do you balance the tension between wanting to help everybody who needs help <laughs> and um, needing to put food on the table as well? Yeah, so that can be really hard. Um, I aim for 10% pro bono hours. Um, and that's something that I've been achieving consistently this year. Mm -hmm. And I aim for working on pro bono projects where I am enabling the organization to learn to do things for themselves. So I don't want to come in pro bono and write a bunch of stories for someone Mm -hmm. because while that might be helpful for them in the short term, it's not something that is going to make them more able to communicate in the long term. term. Yeah, yeah. So... Ways that I work in with people are, for example, Life Education Canterbury, you know, Harold the Giraffe. Mm -hmm. So working with their team on the processes and a template for a newsletter for their funders and stakeholders, and then going through the process of getting the first one out and what that looks like and what should be included in that and what the messaging should be like Mm -hmm. so that their fundraising and marketing manager can then continue to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, Another example is working with Chumley Children's Centre, on how to do a media pitch and how to write a basic media release, what media look for. We then got them to send out the media pitch themselves Mm -hmm. um, and they now have direct relationships with the media that were interested. So they got TV One and I think Breakfast or the AM show Mm -hmm. um, to come along and interview them. Mm. And so now they've got direct relationships with those people. They know how to pitch to the media and so they're able to get Mm. other coverage. Mm So that's how I work on it is basically, is it somewhere where I can be enabling and helping an organization to learn? Mm -hmm. And if it is, I will consider it as a pro bono project, but it needs to fit within my 10% pro bono hours. So sometimes there's a bit of a wait for that. I also like to focus on youth development, community development in particular, because those two areas that I'm very passionate about. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Love working on the youth particularly because they're the next generation so working in for example life education and Chumley are two great examples mm-hmm. there of working with organizations that are looking after our youth and empowering the next generation so if i can be empowering them to be able to communicate better about that then that's fantastic mm. yeah that's good and can you just talk us through because i think you've um you're now working four days a week right yeah that's right so how has that worked out and and what made you decide to do that yeah, so four days. I dream of that yeah, one you day. Dream of that, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So working four days a week is um, harder than you would think, right? But also amazing. Um, so it's it's definitely been a trial and error sort of thing. So yeah. I decided at the start of the year that for the benefit of my own mental health, um, which I can struggle with at times, that I needed a better balance between focusing on work mm-hmm. and doing other stuff that I enjoy. And I decided the four day week would be a good fit. So I've been doing that since the start of the year and I've had to get quite strict about things like having an out of office on on a Friday, Mm -hmm. um, not doing client work on Fridays, not responding to emails on Fridays or phone calls and those sorts of things so that I'm sort of training myself but also training other people that that's not a day that I work. Um, I've also discovered things like don't have meetings on Thursdays when you don't work Fridays because you can't follow up on things until the Monday. I see. Um, so yeah, those sorts of processes have been interesting to work through. So I'm now using Fridays to follow some of my own passion projects. So I like to do some blogging or some writing, mm-hmm. 
do things like what we're doing today, those little extra things that I want to fit in, um, have coffee with interesting people, or I might go and see my nan or walk up a hill with my dog, or if it's a yucky rainy day like today, I might decide that I just want to watch a movie (laughs) um, or relax for a bit. And getting that life admin done as well, like if you need to get a warrant for your car or go to the bank or whatever Mm -hmm. it is, I can get all of that out of the way and then actually have Saturday and Sunday to enjoy with family, with friends and my partner. Mm -hmm. Um, So I can spend those days climbing hills and having lunch and, you know, being with people rather than having to race around doing groceries and Mm -hmm. all those sorts of things. So the balance is feeling a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Well, we'll see how it pans out. Yeah. Because, yeah, there's there's been a couple organizations I've heard of recently who are switching to a four-day week. Yeah. And it's quite, yeah, it's quite interesting. I think I'm know. far more productive yeah. with a four-day week because I'm very focused. I book less meetings because if I'm going to have a meeting, it has to have a very clear purpose. Right. So there's not as many of those random catch-ups catch and coffees. Up. Yeah. yeah. Because I need to know what the outcome of it's going to be because mm. I've only got four days. Mm. And it also means my brain is a bit fresher. So because I do a lot of creative and strategic work, yeah. I just need some extra processing time. a bit time. of time to let it stew and Exactly. Just so like sometimes just walking up a hill with my dog on a Friday, that's mm. when I'll go, oh, that's, you know, that strategy session I had on Tuesday, that's what that thing should be. Yep. And I'll go home from the meeting with, a, uh, from the walk with the dog and I'll write down mm. what I've thought about and then leave that until the following week. But yeah. that's just that, yeah, digestion sort of time for thoughts and creative process. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. And can I just ask about Braveheart Christchurch as well? Because mm. I know you're involved in that. Um, how did you get involved? And can you just describe a little bit about what it's aiming for? Yeah, so Braveheart Christchurch tells the stories of inspiring people in Christchurch who have mm-hmm. basically gone out on a limb and done something quite brave and different mm-hmm. to make our city a better place. Um, so it was started by Simon Challies and Andrew Murray. Mm-hmm. Um, and they organized the first 25 episodes or more um, about some amazing people in Christchurch. And then since then, I've come on as the producer. So I help to find the people who are doing these amazing things, who are usually nominated by people mm-hmm. in Christchurch. Um, so that's how I usually find out about them and then to organize their stories. So we tell their stories in three to four minute videos which are then posted up on Facebook at Braveheart Christchurch and who are shared through a whole lot of different organizations and networks. Mm. So the aim is really to show that people in Christchurch are doing inspiring things and that there's good stuff going on here Mm. um, and that our people are leaders and that our people are inspiring and that our city is a great place to live and to Mm. work and to visit as well. Um, So that's what the purpose of that is yeah yeah that's great yeah and i think actually several of the people who've been in the videos i've interviewed as well so (laughs) it's kind of a nice compliment to get the little the video version and then if people want to dive deeper usually the podcasts go longer so um you know like michelle sharp and julia Rekudge and yeah and you had um, abdi in here i had abdi yeah yeah, same week right (laughs) yeah yeah same week i think abdi actually i was at the mosque with him and then he came here here. yeah Yeah. awesome (laughs) that's good it's good synergy it's an awesome way to meet people yeah um and that's what i find so good about it so yeah it can it can occupy quite a bit of my time trying to organize so not I not only have to organize the person themselves interview, mm. but the people around them who right. are supporting With why they're such a good person. Um, so it can take quite a bit of time, but the things that you realize about the people in our city and the mm. things that you find out about that you wouldn't have found out about 
otherwise mm. are just so interesting. And yeah. some of the nominations we get, we had one about um, a particular technology this week that I can't even explain, but I was just like, that is amazing. Mm. Um, I didn't even know that was a thing and it's happening here in Christchurch. Mm. So it's, yeah, it's almost like being a little mini media organization and finding out about some things before other people do, which yeah. is pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. Yeah, that's great. And just, we're going to draw to a close, but I was just curious about something you said at the start um, mm. about your heritage in terms of Maori um, background and things. And um, is that something that you're in the process of exploring or in, and how much do you know now? And is it informing sort of what you're doing today? Because I love that the Te Ao Maori is such a different way of looking at the world from a pure, strict Western individualistic yeah. point of view. Yeah, Just, so yeah. I've always known that I have, like, that I fuck up to Nati Pro, but our side of the family hasn't had a lot to do with it. So it comes from my dad's side of the family, mm-hmm. and his mum and her mum were of the generation where people didn't really communicate the fact that they were Maori. Um, so his mum, for example, was always told not to talk about it and to try and appear as Pākehā as possible at school by her mother because that is what she had been taught. Mm. So some really interesting layers there. So there hasn't been a lot of openness to talking about it, particularly from my grandmother. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was a book written about that side of the family. Mm. And I'm not sure by who, but that went right back to my great-great-grandmother. And, um, yeah, through all the different marae and through all the different generations. And she married a man who had come to the area to Gisborne who was a Pākehā man and her family was not happy with that um so that's sort of where that disconnection began I see so I've been looking into it more and more and my dad's been quite interested in it as well and finding out a bit more about the lineage and you know, where Amarai is and Mm. those sorts of things um and it's interesting because his mum's really only just started talking about it to us because mm-hmm. we have been doing some digging um, and it's cool to hear her start to talk about those things mm. um, so uh, yeah and I do remember my great grandmother her name was Hinnie Moore and I remember being at her house as a very little kid right? Um, and her talking about birds and talking a lot about nature and things as well I don't remember that much more about her mm. but I think without even knowing it it's influenced the way that I am i um definitely take a very relationship focused approach to how i work and a very big picture holistic approach that considers you know all things Mm. social environmental people um business you know i look at that whole big picture view and so without even really realizing it i think i've been influenced Mm. perhaps from that heritage and that side of the family just innately, if that makes any kind of sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, I think there is a lot in terms of legacy that that you don't even know that you're absorbing or taking on board. And it will be interesting for you to explore. Like, I imagine it's a journey that's opening even to learn some te reo or, you yeah, know, like to, it is, to do that it would is be a journey. Um, and it's, it's like, I'm really proud now to be able to stand up and, for example, like introduce myself in te reo Māori and, mm front of people and I'm lucky because when I was at primary school in the North Island we learned a lot of te reo there so I did have that education when I was younger so it comes back to me quite naturally um, and it's a big part of the reason why I chose the name for my business um, 
for one thing, because I work a lot on the health and well-being and education space, it's I need to be walking the talk. Mm. Um, we're using te reo Māori or we should be using te reo Māori in everyday operations across all of those sectors. Mm. And I'm using it in all of the projects that I'm working on. And so I want it to be part of everyday business. And I think it's something that should be embraced as part of everyday business. Mm. So I want to walk the talk and therefore... I wanted to use a Tereo Māori name. So I spoke to my clients who I've worked with since the start, Hei Whakapiki Māori, and some of their Tereo advisors. Um, and we talked about the kind of way that I operate. And they suggested that Ngātahi would be an appropriate name because it means to come together as one and bring people mm. together as one behind a common cause, mm. which is what I'm all about. And I think the beautiful thing about Tereo Māori is that the words mean so much more in just one word than when we try to explain something in English. Mm. Like if I was just to say together, it's nowhere near as powerful as ngātahi, which is, you know, to come together as one, to bring together. There's so many different layers of meaning there. So I think that's, you know, a really beautiful way of representing my business. And so, yeah, I'm really proud to go out with a te reo Māori name and to start putting a bit of a stamp in the ground and using more te reo Māori in business. Um, mm. It's really cool to be able to use a name that represents my whakapapa back to Ngāti as well mm. and then to be able to continue to explore that. So I think it definitely feels right mm. as a name and as a direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, yeah. I agree. I, it, it all echoes together yeah. and it, it, it makes sense. Yeah, and what what I've loved about our interview as well is just to hear your backstory. It always happens this way, <laughs> but yeah. it's always surprising to me, you know, that you know your childhood and the love of writing and and telling stories, and then what you ended up doing in your first jobs, and then really enjoying the work with the charity, mm. and then how that led in with the earthquakes and communicating well, and now what you're doing with your work today. You know, there's kind of you can see the the progression to what we have today. So um, what we'll do is in the show notes, we'll put links to everything that you've talked about. So if people want to find out more, then they can click through and um, yeah, learn more. I know you've got a new website, don't you? So yeah. <laughs> so we'll do that. Um, but I just want to say thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks your, for having me. It's been, been cool having a good chat. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Hannah. I know for me, there were several things that stood out, in particular, the idea that you need to get your vision right before you do anything else. And I love some of the tips she gave about how you communicate it. I know for me, listening to her story, it was also inspiring to hear somebody who's making some purposeful changes in their life, like having a four-day work week, and also being really deliberate about the type of clients that she's taking on board. If you enjoyed this, then check out some of the other episodes and consider sharing it with a friend. Also, I'm trying to get more ratings and reviews left in Apple Podcasts, because apparently that helps other people to find it. We're up to 43 as at recording this, so a few more would be appreciated. Until next time. (music) 